week, and this week we're going to tackle a parable. But first of all, I would like to take a moment and kind of remind you of what we studied last time we gathered. When we last gathered, Jesus was sitting amongst a group of people who it seemed were always where he went. And as they were sitting with him, there was, a, there was such a large crowd gathered that Jesus' own family could not get to him. And they were trying to get his attention because they, they kind of thought he was crazy. They thought, he's ministering so much so he's not even able to get his food, the food that he needs. Which I find interesting because when Jesus went to the woman at the well, uh, his disciples were with him and as they left, they said, do you want us to get you some food while we're in town if you're going to stay here at the well? And he looked at them and he said, I have food that you not, know not of. Now, he wasn't carrying a loaf of bread in his pocket, but his food was to do the will of God, and that's what he expressed to them. So, as they were sitting there, these family members of his, his mom and and some of his brothers, were calling out to him, and they couldn't get his attention because the crowd was so uh, huge. And so, those that heard him kind of passed the message in to Jesus, and Jesus, when he heard it, he responded, and he said to them, um, who is my mother, and who are my brothers, and who are my sister, sisters? And, and of course, the crowd is all sitting there going, well, we just told you. They sent you a message. They're outside. But his response to them were, and he looked around at the room, that, of the people that were surrounding him, and he said, these that are around me that do the will of my father, these are my mother. These are my sisters. These are my brothers. And so he expressed a truth that I think oftentimes we forget, that when we're children of God, we're imitators of God. Ephesians 5.1, I expressed it last week. It says, therefore, let us be imitators of God as dear children. Just like our children imitate us, what God is desiring is that his children would imitate him. They would be vessels through which he could work through, but that they would also reflect his image, that they look like him, that they talk like him, that They'd, they'd see what his eyes see, that they'd hear what his ears hear, that they'd have a broken heart over a, a, a separated from God humanity that's broken, that fellowship was broken by sin. And so he says that truth. He says that those that are my relatives are truly the ones that do the will of my Father. So as we see this idea, I have the question, and I was left off with the question in chapter 3, well, what is the will of God? How do we know? How do we discern? How do we tell what is the will of God for our lives? Now, obviously, there's some overlying things that are God's will. But there's also specific things in each one of our lives that, that God has specifically preordained or you know, created before us that we should walk in them, these works that he wants to use us for. You know, a craftsman, when he creates a tool, has a purpose that he's trying to fulfill with each tool that he makes. And so in the same way, God's created us for specific things. But what I want to talk about first is the general will of God. The general will of God is that humanity would be given fellowship with Him and have a relationship with Him. And that, that, that gap that was created in the fall when man sinned and rebelled against the one command he was given, that he would be able to again have fellowship restored between him and God. And he did that through Jesus Christ. So will of God, number one, is that he desires we have a relationship with him, even to the point of where he built a bridge so that we could cross through Christ Jesus. He gave us the gateway. He says, here's one way you can have fellowship with me. Know my son. Worship him. And, and so 
But before we really get to that, and I'm not going to get specific about that, because tonight the passage we're going to look at is called the parable of the sower. Now, I like to call it the parable of the soil, because the sower is Jesus Christ, but at the same time, we become sowers as we partake of the seed that he sows on our hearts. But what we're going to end up looking at tonight is the condition of the soil that receives the seed. So verse 1 in chapter 4 of Mark says, Again, he began to teach by the sea, and a great multitude was gathered to him so that he got into a boat, he sat in it on the sea, and the whole multitude was on the land facing the sea. Then he taught them many things by parables and said to them in his teaching, Listen, behold, a sower went out to sow, and it happened as he sowed that some seed fell by the wayside, or by the path. And the birds of the air came and devoured it. Some fell on stony ground, where it did not have much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some seed fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. But other seed fell on good ground and yielded a crop that sprang up, increased and produced, some thirtyfold, some sixtyfold, and some a hundred. And he said to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So as Jesus goes out again and begins to teach, he's teaching next to the sea. And this has happened multiple times. We talked about the fact that he, he set up his headquarters, if you will, in Capernaum, which was on the Sea of Galilee. Now, a couple of weeks ago, I don't remember when it was, he was teaching from a boat, and we talked about the fact that these throngs of people, probably more people than are in most of the towns that we've been to, they, they came to him and they were searching out what he had to offer. Many have heard, had heard of his healings and, and the cleansing of the leper, and they'd heard of him just doing these miraculous works. And, and not only that, but he was also teaching along the way the words of life. And so those that came to him... There were so many of them that rather than trying to have some guys do crowd control, which would not work, it would take forever, and there wouldn't be enough people to help him, what he did was he had one of his disciples, probably, we don't know for sure, but he had somebody that he knew had a boat and said, hey, can I sit on your boat and speak to these people? Well, it was much easier because he could be out in the water, they could be on the shore, and they could hear him as he taught and they also wouldn't have the possibility of crushing him had they rushed in on him. So it was kind of a crowd control. But I want, want you to notice first that when he started teaching, no one stood up and said, okay, now everyone listen. Jesus is going to speak in a parable here and try and figure out what it means. Nobody said that. That was just part of the narrative that Mark writes in after it happened. What he did, what they knew, is that this man that they knew as Jesus, that they had heard all about, got into a boat, pushed it out a little ways, and started to teach. And all they knew was what he started to say. So they weren't you know, sitting there going, okay, I need to figure out what the deep meaning is. They were, they were just listening to exactly what he's saying. Well, what he was saying was he was telling them about how to farm. Okay, that's neat. Not all of us are farmers. Why are you telling us about sowing seed on ground. Obviously, when you sow seed on hard ground, it doesn't take root. It blows away or the birds take it. Okay, well, that makes sense. So all the things that he is saying are true, but it seems like he's teaching in parables, and he told us before that he would 
for a specific reason. So as Jesus starts to talk, he teaches this parable, and it seems like he's giving farming tips. But, it, but what he's really doing is he's speaking to a crowd, and he's speaking in a language that they'll understand. He's giving a, an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning. So a parable is kind of taking a, an earthly story that they could all relate to, they could see in their minds, kind of painting a word picture, and he's casting alongside this heavenly truth that without, with, you know, you, you think about the tongues of angels that Paul speaks about, you know, if he were to give it in the plainest day terms, we probably wouldn't understand a lot of the things that he tries to show us. And so he comes down to our level and he speaks in a, a language that we understand. Now these people... Many of them are farmers, but some of them probably wouldn't be. But they didn't go to the grocery store to get cereal. They didn't go to get bread. They, they would know all about the things that people had to go through in order to prepare the grain that they were going to use to make flour and eventually create bread out of it, using the flour and baking it and all that. They knew that what they were eating wasn't just something on a shelf that was sterile, they knew that it was something that took a lot of hard work to get. So to be thankful for your daily bread is a huge deal. It takes a lot of work. But notice that he starts out in verse 3 saying, Listen, behold. That kind of stuck out to me because uh, the word behold just means to consider or to observe. So using that word, he starts by saying, Listen. And then he says, Consider and observe the following. Or in another way, think about this. And at the end of this story, notice what Jesus says to them in verse 9. Jesus says to them, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So it seems like he bookends this story that he tells by saying, Make sure you pay attention. And oftentimes we do this. We, we tell people, now, you know, and there's one guy on the radio, I don't remember his name, but when he's getting ready to make a point, which is quite often, he'll say, Now listen. And I can't remember who it is. Huh? Charles Stanley. Charles Stanley. He always says, now listen. And then he says something. But it makes emphasis. And Jesus did the same thing. He said, listen, behold, you know, be in awe of, like pay real close attention because I'm getting ready to teach you something that you're going to need. And so as he does this, he goes into the story. But notice in the Bible, anytime something's repeated, it's for emphasis. I think it's one of the main reasons that we have four Gospels. Yes, I just read this a couple of weeks ago in Mark, and now I'm reading it in Luke. And as you do that, you'll go, I already heard that story, but now you get another angle, but you also get the same truths again. God is constant, and the stories, the testimonies about Him are always going to be the same. Unless, of course, somebody's lying about Him. But it seems even those four guys... They repeated some of the stories, and a lot of us would go, aren't you wasting pages? But I say no, because if I'm reading through the Gospels, I need to hear it multiple times. I'm hard of hearing. When he says, he who has ears of hear, excuse me, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. What does he mean by that? How many of you guys in here have ears? All of us, right? I don't see anybody missing any ears. Now, there are people that are missing ears, and there are also people that cannot hear. So, I don't know why that's funny. <laughs> but, you know, the funny thing is, is that many people have ears and yet they don't use them. We all the time have things going on in the backgrounds in our lives. And we have lots of noise going on. But most people couldn't tell you, for instance, when I was growing up, 
we always listened to the classic rock station. And I would always be in the back of the car. And sometimes as a young person who is not yet kind of cauterized to the fact there's always sounds coming in, I was listening to the words and I go, Mom, did you hear what that said? Not because I was convicted or anything like that. We didn't go to church. I was just like, did they just say what I think they said? And I knew it was a bad word, whatever it was. And my mom was like, I don't even know what the words of this song are. Because constantly it's always on. And so he who has ears to hear, let him hear, doesn't just mean he who has the ability to hear. It means if you have the ability to hear, take advantage of it because I'm getting ready to teach you something. So, verse 10. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. Now, obviously, I haven't gone over this before. I made the mistake one time in this particular parable by reading that first section and then going through and applying it and explaining what it meant in the middle of the Bible study because I wasn't very prepared. I stopped and I read ahead and then I was like, oh, wow, Jesus already explained it. Why did I just try? (laughs) I made it too difficult. So anyway, sorry, I didn't mean to stop in the middle. When he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. And he said to them, to you, it has been given to you to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, all things come in parables so that seeing they may see and not perceive and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. First of all, I want to notice that in verse 10, it says, when he was alone, there was this group surrounding him. And then it says, with the 12 asked him about the parable. There were 12 that he had chosen as apostles in the last chapter. But it seems that there were also a group of people that were with the 12 that were also considering what was just taught. And they were saying, there's more to this than meets the eye. Can you explain it to us? Why did you just give us farming tips? Why did you just tell us about how to sow seed or what what ground produces the most fruit? Why are you telling us this? So to those who heard and listened to what Jesus had just taught, they had questions about this story. And questions, I think, oftentimes are looked down on. When I was in college, oftentimes I didn't want to ask questions because I didn't want to look dumb. But the problem with that is that if you have a question and you don't know the answer, you're in ignorance. You don't have an answer. And so if you don't ask the question, you're going to remain that way. So if you think that not having an answer to your own question makes you look dumb, you stay that way. So why not ask the question, look dumb once, and know, have the answer. And so these guys go up and you know a lot of people would say, well, you're kind of bold. I mean, maybe he doesn't have time to answer your question. Seems to me that to those that had the question, he wanted to give them an answer. He wanted to whet their appetite, to create taste in their mouths. When newborns are born, they have to have their appetite whetted in order to see that they're going to need to take something in. And so oftentimes you think about Bible and learning the Bible. People think, well, you know, one day if they really are interested, they'll start asking questions. And Me, what I think about as getting ready to be a parent in a few months, I think, no, from a young age, I want to whet their appetite. I'm going to read it to them. And I'm hoping that when they don't understand, they're going to look at me and go, Daddy, what's that mean? Why are you reading this to me? And then at that point, I'm going to give them the answer. 
I'm not going to wait for somebody else to come along and whet their appetite for something worldly that won't satisfy, that won't be what they need. They're going to be hungry no matter what. Why not whet their appetite for something that's true and good and pure and honest? So, first we need to ask the question. He says there in verse 11, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. Now, a mystery is something that can be found out, by the way. It's not something that's... It is hidden, but it takes some study. It takes some seeking to find out what it is. You think about a murder mystery. You think about the police officer that is trying to find the one that committed the murder. He has a desire to see justice fulfilled, to have it meted out. And so because he has that desire, he looks and examines all the facts, all the information that's available to him so that he can find out what is the key to the mystery. What is, what is the person that committed that crime? And in this case, they're desiring to find out what is the meaning of this story. And because of that, it's been given to them to know the mystery of the kingdom. And it's been given to them because they've asked the question. Because they're close to Jesus and they're conversing with him. Okay, what does it mean? So Jesus said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those outside all things come in parables. Now the parables were just stories that had the truth subtly worked into them. Those who listened carefully could understand the point of the parable, but those who listened casually, those that were just there for maybe to see the, the, the miracle works happen, or maybe even to get a, a felt need met, would probably miss out on what he was actually there to do. So those who were listening casually, all they heard was an interesting story. All they heard was farming tips. But then Jesus from Isaiah 6 He quotes where Isaiah is going through a similar situation. In some of your Bibles, that section that says, seeing they may not see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Jesus is quoting from a a well-known chapter in Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 6. See, in this particular scripture, Isaiah is going through a similar situation. You see, in the year of the death of King Uzziah, who was the king at that time, Isaiah got a vision of the temple of God, and it was indwelled by God, and he was surrounded by holy angels who were worshiping the Creator. And as Isaiah gets this vision, he realizes how unholy and how wrong his motives were. See, he's not like us. Isaiah was looking to this king, this ruler that had been put on the throne to be the answer to reform religious reform happening in his country. Well, the Lord shows him a vision to kind of knock down that image because his king, the one he thought was going to bring this positive change in their country, he died. And so he didn't bring what Isaiah thought he was going to. So Isaiah here gets a vision of who God is, and he's reminded that God is on the throne. He's the one that's going to make the changes. And as a matter of fact, He's calling people to go out and to preach the good news. And even uh, the message that he gives him is a little bit of a hard message. So God shows him his sinfulness and he expresses to the Lord, Isaiah does, that he is undone. He's a man of unclean lips amidst a people of unclean lips. And as he does, does that, he repents, 
God takes this hot coal in this vision and he puts it against Isaiah's lips and he purges them of sin. He cleanses them. And after he does that, he says in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, he says, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? See, he cleansed his lips and then he said, Who can I send? And then I, Isaiah, said, Here am I, Lord, send me. And he said, go and tell this people. This is the message that he gives them, that he gives Isaiah to give to the people. He says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return and be healed. You see, it's not God's desire that people be confused. That's not the idea here. It's God's desire to teach only those who really want to hear the truth from him. He tells Isaiah to go, tell the people to keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Basically, God's using Isaiah to tell the people, you're listening to me, but you're not hearing and receiving the truth behind what I'm telling you. When you hear something enough times, you begin to grow deaf to the message. The example I have is from personal experience, so forgive me if you can't relate to it. But after I got my license, I was about 16, go figure, my dad would always tell me something as I was walking out the door. What do you think it was? Be careful. Be careful. He said it every time I walked out the doors. Every time. <laughs> Every time. Ad nauseum. And so as he would say it as I was going out the door, as a teenager with very short sight, what I heard was what? I don't trust you and you're probably going to wreck. So please remember that I love you. Actually, that's not what I heard. Sorry, I'm kind of messing up the story a little bit. But he's saying, I don't trust you to drive safely. So I'm going to remind you every time you go out the door, be careful. Be careful, be careful. Well, was that what he was really trying to tell me? No. His message to me in his own way was, I love you. I would like to see you when you get home. I'd like to see you in the morning when I wake up after you got home. But I also want you to be careful because I love you. The message was, I love you. It wasn't, hey, I want to rule over you and I want to micromanage your life. It was, I love you, so I want you to continue to live. I want to see you grow up. I want to see you have a family. And, and, but as a teenager, you don't hear that. All you hear is, I don't trust you. And the parents are, you know, most of the time, they're not saying that. And so Jesus' message to this crowd was, hear my words, search out what they mean, hear the heart of my father. It wasn't just about the law. See, the, the Jewish people had gotten so good at following the law that they missed out that the heart of God was that they would follow the law because he loved them enough to tell them what was going to hurt them. And so he's, he's telling them, Hear the heart of my Father, turn to God and be forgiven of your sins, and have your relationship with God be restored. That was the result. If they would hear, and if they would see what God was trying to do, they would be restored to him. And so he's telling this crowd of people. Notice, though, who Jesus explains the parable to. He explains it to those who ask him for an explanation. I think oftentimes we think that if we read the Word of God and we don't understand it, then we're among the minority. But oftentimes, 
more times than not. We, we worship a God who is beyond our figuring out. And so he desires that we would fellowship with him by saying, Daddy, I don't get it. That's what that word means. Abba, Father, Daddy. I don't get it. Can you explain this to me? It's like a child that doesn't understand why, you know, you know, somebody makes a joke and they're like, well, I don't get it. Why is it funny? You know, God wants to give us wisdom that only he has and, and he can't give it to us unless we want it. He can't teach us anything unless we're teachable. And so verse 13, he explains to them. So he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all parables? Now, just real quick, it seems that this parable has some elements in it because he said that, that are keys to understanding all the other parables. Um, and we'll see a couple of those. Verse 14, the sower sows the word, and these are the ones by the wayside, by the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. These likewise, verse 16, are the ones who Excuse me, the ones sown on stony ground who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and they have no root in themselves, and so endure only for a short time. Afterward, when tribulation or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they stumble. Now these are the ones sown among thorns. They are the ones who hear the word, and the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things enter in choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. But these are the ones sown on good ground, those who hear the word, accept it, and bear fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. So, example one, hard ground. They hear the word, but because of a hard exterior that has been built up by sin and by being tread upon regularly, the seed does not get through. The surface is stamped down, it's smashed, and so there's, it's, there's no pores. It's not airy enough to receive the seed. And so because of that, it lays on the top, the wind blows it, the heat gets to it and kills the seed, or it says in this case that, that Satan plucks it up. The birds in, in the parables always give, a, a, they're a symbol of Satan coming in and coming to that hard heart that's not received the word. The seed is still there. It's not hurting, it's laying there. But what happens, because it doesn't go down in the soil, it's unprotected, and Satan comes, away, comes in and steals it away. So the, example, the second example is the example of the stony ground. This is not like the ground that we think of here in Iron County. This isn't soil that's got rocks all over the place in it necessarily. It's soil that looks great on the surface. It's prepared, there's little plants growing on it, maybe some moss. We have some of that around here, right? Go to uh, Elephant Rock, some of the ground that's lower towards where there's still soil. There's soil there, and if you didn't know any better, you'd be like, this is great soil for planting a crop. But if you sow seed on it, what happens? The seed lands on the soil. It gets into the soil. It starts to grow, but when the plant starts to grow, it really starts to send out some roots right below the surface, maybe even a couple inches the roots go down and they hit rock. Well, if there's rock there, there can't be any more depth to that plant. And so when it rains, and maybe there's a torrential downpour like we've been having recently, 
that plant kind of gets blown over because there's no roots. It might even get uprooted and sent down the hill. And then there's the other opportunity that it has when there's a drought. There's no rain because there's no roots that go down deep to a water source. What happens is that plant can't get sustenance and it also can't get water. And so it it dies. It shrivels up and dies in the day of adversity. So, example three, the thorny ground. This is the seed that is sown and it lands among thorns and weeds. It takes root, starts to grow, but when the plant grows, it's stunted by the weeds and the thorns that are stealing all the nutrients in the soil. Now, weeds can be defined as worthless plants. They're plants that are growing, but they're all about themselves. You don't harvest weeds in order to create anything we can eat. Now, there are some animals like goats and stuff like that where they don't care what they eat. They're just going to put everything in their mouth. But there's not, even when they eat it, there's not much substance to it. There's not much nutrition. And so we want good plants like wheat that will produce nutrients that will sustain us. But what happens when we plant those things amongst thorns and amongst other plants, they take all the nutrients and so that those, those, uh, those plants can't grow. They're choked out. They can grow, but they'll never grow to the point of actually being fruitful. So, this is much like the idols in the Old Testament. Um, False gods that they would worship were ultimately gods that they would create of themselves. They would take, you know, maybe a a piece of stone, or they would take a, a big log, and what they found is that they would carve this image of what they thought their god would look like, and that would actually be their god. They'd set it on their table. I've been to India several times, and what they would do is they would... They, they, they take this idol, they still do this to this day, and they'll put food in front of it, and they'll burn incense, and they'll do all these things that cost a lot of money. And what they do is they end up pouring their time and efforts into worshiping this thing that has nothing to offer them except to be there, to stay, sit there, and to take all of their resources in order to be worshipped. But God doesn't do that. When we worship Him, what happens is He purges us of our sin, He forgives us, and then as He changes our lives, He makes us fruitful by pouring into us the resources that we need in order to serve Him and do His will in our lives. So, but what happens is, oftentimes, the Word of God is sown on our hearts, it lands on good soil, but we have so many other things going on in our lives that are just as important or more important that when they're all mixed together, our resources like time and finances, all those things can only be spread out so far, right? We only have so many resources. But when, what happens is if we have so many things that are going on, but the Word of God or maybe God's will for our lives isn't the number one thing, we pour all our resources into things that will not satisfy, that won't give back to us, and we don't have anything to do when it comes to studying the Word of God, simply. We're just spending time praying. And so, when God's word and the cares of the world are sown in the same heart, the weeds and the thorns will always choke out and stunt the effects of God's word in our lives and keep us from producing fruit, which if allowed to grow, would benefit our growth. May we let God weed our hearts in order that we produce 
the best fruit for our good and for, the, for God's glory. I love what this says. Psalm 86, I'll have it up for you. Verse 11 and 12 says, <clears throat> says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. Another version I really like says, Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. I will praise you, O Lord, my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forevermore. So that's the result. The individual with an undivided heart toward God will praise him with all their heart, and in, as a result, they'll glorify his name forever. Example four, good ground. This is where we all want to be, hopefully. The ground that has seed sown on it, it penetrates the surface, and it grows and it produces fruit. Remember that this was and still is the desired result for any farmer that's out sowing seed. This is what he's trying to do. God is trying to sow seed in order to raise a harvest of righteousness. In order to plant in us the good word that we need, he sows it and he scatters it. And what he does is he scatters it to the point where it lands on your heart and mine. And as he scatters it, he raises up crops of righteousness in our lives. Well, you know what happens when wheat comes to full maturity? It actually grows seed, little tufts of seed on the end. And what the farmer does after he cuts it down, the seed that doesn't fall off, he actually takes that wheat and he binds it together. He takes it to a threshing floor and he either shakes it or he runs over it with something that's heavy that will tear it all up and the stalks all fall off, and the wheat, or the seed that's produced from it, is actually what we take and we produce flour from, and what we actually eat that produces life. It comes into us, and we eat it, and the nutrients go out into our body, and they give us the ability to walk around, the ability to talk. You know, it gives us the energy that we need to do our jobs. Well, in the same way, His Word is trying to do the same thing. As it lands on our hearts, not only does it produce plants that grow up and are healthy and produce fruit, but it also produces seed that someone else might be sustained by. He wants us to produce fruit, not only in our own lives, but in others. And when we have healthy soil in our hearts, that will be the result. Not only will we be sustained by the fruit that's produced, but other people will be also sustained by the fruit that's being produced as an act or as a result of God's grace on our lives being poured in being sowed constantly, and as our soil is prepared and constantly being softened, God uses it. So in effect, the seed that falls on good soil ends up being a plant that itself sows seed in the future. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 through 25. Oh, maybe it's not on there. I might have forgotten. Is it 1 Peter? Can you go back? Oops. Well, I'll just read it to you. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22 through 25, he says, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth, can't do that without knowing it right, through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, knowing this, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever, because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. 
Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. So God's word contains good seed that will produce, and what it produces will be the fruit of life, a new life. And this seed produces life that abides forever. It's everlasting. It's not just a plant. The sower is called to sow seed as he goes, and it doesn't seem that he is too concerned with where it falls just so it gets sown everywhere. And the most important part, however, is the condition of the soil. God's sowing seed all the time, and his desire is to raise a harvest of righteousness that will produce fruit. So as we consider this passage today from Jesus' earthly ministry, what would you say is the condition of your heart? So I was asking myself, this is what I wrote down. Is it like the soil by the wayside that's been walked on so much that it's hard and unable to receive? Have you found yourself hearing God's word, maybe even reading it regularly by yourself or attending church services, but maybe have you found it that his word isn't really having any effect in your life? Maybe it's because your heart is too hard to receive it because of unbelief or maybe even disobedience to God and something that has already been shown to you by him, but you're unwilling to repent. Maybe it's because you have not yet asked for forgiveness of your sins against God and surrendered your life to Him for the first time. I pray that you would be willing to ask God to till the soil and make it soft and rich so that you'll be able to receive the words of life. Number two, is it the stony soil that's willing and ready to receive God's word but has no roots because though there's an outward appearance of a willing heart, there's no depth to your faith in Him. There's no depth to the actual uh, seed that's been growing. I pray that you would be willing to ask God to break up that stony ground, to till it, to, to take it, maybe it once was soft and it's hardened, and just to till it up. Let Him completely have His way with you, even though you're afraid to give all because you don't know what that implies. Maybe you're afraid He's going to do something that you're not comfortable with. Or is your heart like the thorny ground that we talked about? You want to follow the Lord and receive His word, but when you do, there's so many other things in your life that keep you from the one thing that matters the most for eternity. I pray that you would be willing to ask the Lord to take inventory of your life and really search out the things that you put the most effort and the most resources into. What are the things that take the most of you? Are they worth the investment? What does it profit a man, Jesus said, to gain the whole world and lose his own soul? If you're willing to let the Lord search your heart and have final veto power, I always call it that, the final veto power on everything in your life, it might even be that He will free you from some of the things that keep you so busy that you don't have any peace. Whether your heart is in any of these conditions or not, I pray that God would give us all the hearts of the good soil, myself included, to be like the last example. May we be those that hear the word, accept it as God's final authority, and be diligent to constantly make ourselves available to it in order to let it do what it does, which will teach us His ways and will give us His will and His desire for our life. He's teaching this group that's just heard Him say that those that are His brothers and sisters and His mother, His family, are those that do the, word of, the will of God. Well, we can know the will of God from the Word of God. But please turn to Second uh, Peter chapter 1 as we close. Peter writes concerning the faith of God's people. And I, I was thinking about this verse because uh, 
if we want to be fruitful, we don't want to be unfruitful. And Peter talks about it so well in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. He says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue by which have been given to us exceedingly and great, great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But also for this very reason, give all diligence, or giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to the brotherly kindness, love. First of all, notice that those are the fruits of the Spirit that are listed in the book of Galatians. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. But the next verse says, For if these things are yours, and they abound, these fruits, you will be neither barren, nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted, even to the effect of being blind, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ." So he says there, you won't be unfruitful, you won't be blind, and all of your time spent studying the Word of God won't be in vain. You'll be hearing from the Lord, and He'll be sowing seed on your heart, and you'll be blessed. You'll be hearing from Him, which gives you joy and peace, but you'll also be a blessing to others, because as you produce fruit, and I've gone over multiple times already, that other people will be able to partake of that fruit, And you ever hear that phrase in the Psalms that says, taste, see that the Lord is good. That fruit that you're producing might be someone else getting to taste the Lord for the first time. And so may we be diligent, as he said there, to make our call and election sure that we wouldn't stumble, but also that as we're doing that, that God would also call other people to faith in him through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May that effect be evident in our lives. So next week, Jesus will continue in the parables. Father, thank you so much for allowing us to gather. Thank you for giving us the words of life that produce fruit that will ultimately, if we let you have your way, uh, be a blessing and life to others that without you have no hope, have no peace have no fruits of the Spirit, don't look moral, don't have the outward evidences of faith, but also don't have the inward evidences. Lord, uh, may we have the inward and the outward fruit that you desire to produce, and may you get all the glory. Ultimately, your will is that we'd be blessed, that we'd be coming into fellowship with you, but Lord, also that we would bring you glory, which is what we were made to do, to worship you and give you glory. So, Lord, thank you for your people coming out to hear from your word. I pray that uh, you'd send us out equipped for the work of the ministry. In Jesus' name, amen.